you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where we're going to look at the good servant's hope today. We're in a section of Timothy that lays out for us the job description of every excellent minister. What the excellent minister is to labor for, what he is to focus on, the tasks he is to accomplish, and uh, just his disciplines in general. A leader in the church is constantly pulled like a brain mule from side to side by a myriad of things. There are a lot of things in the church which try and, and get leaders to do things that the Bible doesn't necessarily tell them to do. And there are so many of these things that pull at you. Uh, the world is pulling at you to be carnal, to give in to things that are sinful. And even in the congregation, people want you to do things for them. They want you to kind of do ministry for them as if you are the minister and they are not. Um, but we are all called to be ministers. And uh, all of us are to minister to one another. All of us have spiritual gifts that we can use to bless each other with. And yet, in the church... The leaders oftentimes struggle because certain people think they should do this and other people think they should do that. You should uh, do my ministry for me, evangelize my friends for me. Um, I want you to do more counseling and less preaching and more teaching or whatever it is. There is a constant pulling back and forth. And many leaders, because their feet are not founded in the scriptures, because they have never really taken time to ask themselves, what does God want me to do and what does his word tell me to do? They are swallowed up by the monsters of people's expectations. Then their downfall is apparent. They desire to please men more than God. They listen to the masses and slowly compromise first in very small degrees and then by steps and then by leaps and bounds. And soon they are mediocre ministers of Jesus Christ, preaching mediocre sermons to mediocre saints at the first church of mediocrity. And then that's the end. The church is dead, even though it has a name. Yet there is a cure for all of this. Like penicillin to gangrene, the cure is to love God more than men and to obey his word regardless of what men say. God, not men, knows what is best for his church. And so as we come, we look at the scriptures here to see what God expects of the excellent minister. And what is great about the text before us is this text tells us in very simple and concise way what the excellent minister is, what he does, and what he must pursue. And so this morning, we are going to look at this good or excellent minister's hope. The excellent minister has a hope that drives him to accomplish the things listed in this text. You know, people in the church are often like children. They will eat junk food until they, were, they are sick. When presented with something sweet like candy or, you know, meat and potatoes, they will take candy. And even though you tried to tell them that one thing is better than the other, yet unless you make them, they just will prefer candy over what is good for them. And in the similar way, there are people in the church who would rather not be convicted, rather not labor and strive, they would rather have it easy. And so they take the path of least resistance, which is not the path of the excellent minister. You take sheep, put them in the pasture, take away the shepherd, and you may not know this, but sheep will eat the grass down to the dirt. 
They will destroy pasture land because they will eat it so low that it won't come back. They destroy their very survival instead of moving around. That is why God has given shepherds. Sheep without a shepherd will be devoured by wolves and some will wander away. And so God has appointed leaders in the church to try and encourage people to do what is right. Men who should know the word of God, should understand the standard of the word of God, and should compel their people to do those things God wants them to do. And so far we have seen that the excellent minister has four things he does. First, he is constantly nourished up on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. We saw that from verse 6. Secondly, we also notice that he must practice what he teaches and studies. Not only is he a constantly being nourished person, he is a constantly teaching person and a constantly practicing person. If he's not practicing, then he's a hypocrite. If he's studying, but he's not teaching, then he's disobeying God. He's being selfish. He must constantly be nourished, constantly teach, and constantly practice. And fourth, he must constantly discipline himself for godliness. And that is what we looked at last time. And you need to know that an excellent minister is a person that you need to model your life after. That is why it is important that all of us understand this. Some of you may be thinking out there, well, I'm not a minister and I'm not going to be a minister. Well, you may not be the guy up here behind the pulpit or a church leader But all of us are ministers, and we're all called to be excellent ministers. And the reason excellent ministers are to be excellent is so they can model for others what it means to walk closely with the Lord. So while this text is directed at ministers in specific who lead the church, yet we are all ministers in one way or another and need to be excellent in those ways. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along as I read verses 6 through 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. For it is this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Look again at verse 10, and this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Notice he says, for it is this, we labor and strive. Now, he says why we labor and strive. It's because we have fixed our hope on the living God. And he describes who this living God is, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. And so from this text, we are going to see four aspects of the good servant's hope. First, we see 
how your hope should motivate you to labor for the Lord. And secondly, we will see the object of your hope is the living God. Third, we will see the universal reason why we are to hope and pursue godliness even among much labor. And fourth, we will see the particular reason why you can hope even in your pursuit of godliness. So, let's look at this first line. For it is this we labor and strive. What is the this that Paul refers to? Well, if you go back up to verse 8, we have seen that he says, Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. That is, according to verse 9, a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. You know, when you think about it, We strive for a lot of things here on earth, don't we? I mean, we strive to have houses, we strive to have cars, we strive to have fame, we strive to have money, we strive for a lot of things. And while we're striving, you need to ask yourself, how many of those things are you going to take with you? Well, I have news for you, none of them. You are not going to take your house with you. As one person said, they never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. You cannot take your material possessions with you. There is only one thing that you can take with you, and that is your godliness. The only thing that is going to fit through the pearly gates is godliness. Even your body, God is going to change, and anything you do that's not for the glory of God will not enter either. The scriptures say it will be burned up. But godliness is that one gem, that choice character that God builds in us now and perfects an eternity that we can take with us. That's why it is profitable both in this life and the life to come. And it is for this godliness that we labor and strive. That's what he means when he says godliness is the this here. So when Paul says it is for this, he's talking about this relentless pursuit, which he describes by two words, the first being labor. A word in the Greek which means hard, relentless toil and struggle. Uh, We've all seen uh, maybe the Olympics or been in a track meet or whatever where there's been this uh, person who is uh, running and running and running. And they're, you know, they just, they look miserable. I mean, they are just running their heart out. And yet right before the finish line, they actually start speeding up. And you're amazed just to watch them speed up, even though they've maybe been running for miles. And they run and run, and they're pushing as hard as they can, and they cross the finish line, and what happens? They just collapse. Some of them just fall down on the ground and just roll in the dust. They're just so tired, so wasted, so wiped out, they can't run a step further. That's what this word is talking about. It's talking about laboring to the point of sweat and exhaustion. Now, that is kind of a convicting thing, isn't it? It sounds painful. It's one thing to watch somebody else, uh, you know, run until they collapse. It's quite another thing to do it. Doing it is not very fun. It's funner to watch somebody else do it. But the text says that the excellent minister is the one who labors. He labors. There are some days you try to study the word of God so you can feed the sheep, And even though you have good intentions, you never get anything done. You know, sometimes Lisa calls me in the morning and says, Honey, how are you doing? I said, Well, I just got my emails done, and I'm going to start studying now, and my slate's clean, and everything's great, and I'm just going to plow into the text. And then she's wondering where I'm at at 5.30 or 6, and she calls up and says, Honey, uh, how's things going? I'm just getting ready to come home. Did you get some study in? No. No, never opened the Bible. 
say, what happened? Too many things to tell you. There are so many interruptions, so many things that happen, so many things I don't even count on. People dropping in and phone calls and emergencies and crises and people dying and people in the hospital. Things that, that pull you away from this laboring and striving. There are constant deadlines to meet every week and people are wanting to be fed. But there's no instant sermons. I mean, you can pull up a sermon off the Internet and preach it, but you can't preach it with passion. You can't preach a sermon that you haven't studied thoroughly. If you aren't convinced that the text teaches that, if you haven't let the word of God pour through your own heart, then you can't preach a a passionate sermon. And so there are no instant sermons. You can't rip a couple pages out of the Bible, throw them in the microwave, hit, you know, the one minute popcorn button and out it comes. Instant sermon. That doesn't work. No good sermons are made in the crock pot. Good Bible studies are made in the crock pot. You have to let them simmer there a long time. You have to think about them. Come back the next day, think about some more, work on them a little bit more, do a little bit more study, do a little bit more study. I remember a few weeks back, um, it was one of the Tuesdays, and the Tuesdays are, are the, the, well, I invented a new word the first service. I called it grudel. Um, they're really brutal and grueling. Um, grudel is the new word that came out of my mouth. But anyways... Um, On Tuesdays, we get up, the elders meet at 6 o'clock to pray for the prayer request that you submit. And and, uh, it was a a full day. And there was counseling appointments and all these sorts of things. And, you know, it went on and on and on and on. And finally, about 7 o'clock, I think, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go home. And so uh, I'm I'm turning off my lights and I'm kind of backing out because there's all these doors and I'm locking them as I'm going out. And as uh, it's all dark out there and in the hallway, and when I close the door, I hear somebody closing the door behind me and I look around and it's Justin Erickson. And he's coming out. And then I say, at the same time, he says, I'm burnt. And then I said, and he said at the same time, me too. (laughs) And so we walked out of the hall and uh, our eyes were bloodshot and we were kind of limp and straggly. And we were tired. We were burnt out. It was over. We had run the race for that day. And then there was always tomorrow. And that's what it kind of is like for the ministry, sometimes you think, you know, I'm going to go to the office and have a little time with the Lord, a little prayer, and open my Bible and read some good stuff, read a few commentaries, read some good journal articles, and go home happy to my wife. That never happens. That only happens when I come in on a holiday, but my wife won't let me. No, you have to battle all the time to, to labor to do those things that the scriptures tell you you must do. Because what happens is, is there are many urgent things of low importance that try to eclipse those things that aren't urgent, but of very high importance. And so you have to discipline yourself to say no to the very urgent, low importance things so that you can do the very high important, non-urgent things. Thomas Watson, in his work, Harmless as Doves, said this, quote, Ministers are physicians under God to cure sick souls. God has set in his church pastors and teachers. The ministers are a college of physicians. Their work is to find out disease and apply medicines. It is hard work. And while ministers are curing others, they themselves are nigh unto death. 
They find their people sick of several diseases. Some have poisoned themselves with error. Some are surfeited with the love of the creature. Some have stabbed themselves in the heart with gross sin. Oh, how hard it is to heal all these sick, gangrene souls. Many cure um, their patients, but through the work of the ministry, be a laborious work. It is needful work. And while there are sick souls, there will be a need of spiritual physicians, end quote. So the, the, the minister is one who labors, he strives, and he is striving to do two things. To build godliness in his life and godliness in the lives of others. And that's about as simple as you can get it. And so if you are going to be an excellent minister, you must be looking towards labor. Some people go, well, gosh, you know, I wish I could be a pastor. Then I only have to work a couple hours on Sunday. And the rest of the time, you could just golf all week. Well, some pastors do do that, and you can tell on Sunday. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul uses the same word found on our text. And listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we call that the Popeye verse at our house. Um, And his grace towards me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I like that. Because Paul says, I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. He gives all the credit to God because God was the one who gifted him. God was the one who called him. God was the one who strengthened him to do what he was supposed to do. And so he says... Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. In Colossians 1.29, Paul wrote this, For this we labor and strive according to his power which mightily works within me. And he explains how he's laboring and striving according to this power which works within me. And what's great about that is this. If God has gifted you, if God has called you, then God will strengthen you to do whatever he has called you to do. You don't have to worry about getting out there and then running out of gas. Because God will never allow you to run out of gas in the pursuit of doing what he wants you to do. The same word is found in 1 Timothy 5.17. If you turn there, you'll see what it says. Speaking of elders and paying those who um, are oxes uh, in the threshing floor, so to speak... He says this, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who, here's our word, work hard at preaching and teaching. And then, if that wasn't scary enough, if it wasn't scary enough to know what that word labor means, he adds another word. The word strive. When he says this, we labor and strive. And this is a very intensive Greek word. It is the Greek word agonizomai, which is the word we get, guess what, from? Agonize. That's it. The agony of the ministry. For this we toil unto exhaustion and agonize. It is for this, this purpose of godliness, we do that, Paul says. It's the same word Jesus used, speaking of salvation in Luke 13, 24, when he said, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able That word strive is agonizomai. Paul had a companion that he said agonized, Epaphras. And this is how he described him in Colossians 4.2. Paul said, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Now that phrase, laboring earnestly, is agonizomai. 
Epaphras was an earnest laborer. Now, when you think about this, this whole laboring and agonizing business, it does not sound very fun. As a matter of fact, to the world and to those who don't know Christ, it may seem rather foolish. Why would you just, quote, throw your life away when you could pursue all these earthly treasures treasures that you aren't going to take with you? That's what they're basically saying. But to those who know God and to know what is to come, they have a motivation. Just as the runner has a motivation to reach the finish line and to get the, the medal or the whatever they're trying to run for, the fame, so the excellent minister has a motivation. And that motivation is a hope in the living God. Notice what the text says. It says, For this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Paul goes on to tell us that the good servant of Jesus Christ fixes his hope on the living God. And this word translated, fixed our hope, is a perfect tense, which means that at a point in time, at salvation, a person gets a hope. And that hope is in God. And that that hope continues. And that's why some of the Bible translations don't have the word fixed there. But the New American Standard translators put it in there because it describes this enduring and perpetual hope that every excellent minister has. Because he is at once understanding that God is the living God and that he will deliver him and reward him for anything he might ever suffer here on earth um, in the cause of striving after godliness. Now, it was nice to have a couple of days off this Thanksgiving, and it doesn't happen very often. Usually I take Mondays off, and and uh, and I on Thursday, before I went to my brother's house, we... Um, me and me and Nate spent about six hours under the house uh, plumbing, and uh, on Friday we spent twelve hours under there. And then uh, yesterday, most of the day again, Mark's turn yesterday. Nate was recovering, and um, they're good tool fetchers. I mean, they just they just cruise around under there like it's nothing. For me, it's a belly crawl and head whacking and trying to ignore the spiders and the dust and. You know, trying to get the extension cords that are all wrapped around the pylons, you know, undone and cutting pipe out. And and you would ask, you know, why would anybody do that? Now, why would I take my vacation and spend it under my house? Because there is a hope (laughs) that I will finish. There's the hope of not having to pay a plumber. There's a hope of knowing that I don't have rusted galvanized pipes under my house when they should be black iron pipes and that they're too small. And so I cut them all out and now I know they're right because I did it. And you think, well, that's pretty futile. That's a pretty wimpy hope. It is a wimpy hope. It's a very wimpy hope compared to the hope that we have in this text. When you look at this text, it tells us that we have this greater hope And here's a lesson that we need to learn. A person with great hope is a person willing to endure and suffer greatly. The person with a small hope is only willing to suffer a small bit. As hope increases, so does endurance and perseverance. And that is what we need to learn from this. The believer has a fixed hope because he has a fixed faith. And when you look in the scriptures, you see see hope and faith are very closely linked. Remember how Hebrews defines faith? That faith is the assurance of things 
hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope looks ahead and it sees what is promised and it steals itself, it resolves itself to believe that and to continue on. That is why Paul suffered so greatly, yet he never gave up. That is why so many people and martyrs all around the world, yes, even today, are persecuted unto death. Why? Because they will not say, I deny Jesus, that's all. And they are killed for it. And you would think, man, that, that, that seems a little irrational. No, no, not if you have a hope, a fixed hope. And notice what the text says, in the living God. No, on the living God. Look at that. That's interesting because almost all through the New Testament, it is hope and faith in God. But here he uses the preposition on. He says, we have a hope that is placed upon God, which makes God a bedrock, a foundation for our hope. And there is an important point to know, and that is this. The better you know God, the easier it is to trust him and have hope in him. The less you know God, the harder it is to trust in him. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 42, 5. The psalmist writes, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And then the psalmist speaks to himself, Hope in God, for I shall, shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Then in verse 11 of that same psalm, 42.11, he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? I mean, it's like he's rebuking himself. What are you doing worrying? Then he answers, And why have you become disturbed within me? He says, Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Turn to Psalm 62. I just want to show you this. There are so many great texts about hoping in God. And Psalm 62 is one of them, out of many, too many to mention. But in Psalm 62, verse 1, we see the psalmist go through these cycles, talking about how he is oppressed, how he is afflicted how evil men are trying to persecute him and yet how he can persevere through all of that and he says this in verse one my soul waits silently for god only and from him is my salvation he only is my rock and my salvation my stronghold i shall not be greatly shaken how long will you assail a man that you may murder him all of you like a leaning wall like tottering fence they have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in Him all the times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. And that is our hope. That is our hope. That is what people of the world do not have. They do not have a hope. What do they hope for when they die? They hope that God doesn't exist. They hope that they just go back to the dust. They hope that the theory of evolution is true, that men climbed out of some primordial sign, that the second law of thermodynamics doesn't work. They hope all of those things. They hope is grounded on what? Nothing. 
Nothing. They do not have a living God. And we learned before that this term living God is a term that comes primarily from the Old Testament. When Israel was in the Old Testament, they were surrounded by these nations who worshipped idols. And sometimes they themselves worshipped these idols. And so in order to distinguish the many idols of these nations and the living God, he was called this living God because only a living God can give you eternal life. Dead gods can't save. Dead gods can't deliver. You hope in a dead god, it doesn't do you any good. Hope in an idol, it doesn't do you any good. Only a living God can save you. And so Paul says, we hope in the living God. It's the same term he uses in verse 15 of chapter 3, where he describes the church as the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so... When we come, we see that this important concept of hope, and this is, this is, uh, I see this all the time um, through the week as I talk to people or going through trials and troubles. People have lost their hope. And I'll sit there and I'll marvel and I'll look at them and say, so, you're despairing, you're anxious, you're, you're suffering, you're fearful. And then I ask them, what is your hope? Well, uh, you know, um, God. And it's almost like they're asking me a question. Is it? Of course it is. Now, the problem is, is if they don't know God very well, they have a very hard time trusting him. You know, let's say uh, we were all to go bungee jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And, um, and you know, that's, that's kind of scary. Uh, I imagine jumping off there with the bungee cord, and it kind of you bounce all the way down to the surface of the water, and then recoil or whatever. And they have this new kind of rope, and it's only an eighth inch thick. It's you know made out of titanium fibers or whatever. It's super strong; can hold a semi. And they tell you this: Oh, it's okay. This little tiny cord will hold you. And you're thinking to yourself, well, it's scary to take this plunge, but it is more scary to take this plunge with that little tiny cord. Now, it would be very hard for you to trust in something that you didn't know anything about. But if you were the guy who invented that cord, if you were the guy who took 3,000 pounds and threw it off a cliff and tried to see if you could break that cord and it didn't break, you would have a great faith in that cord because you knew that cord. You designed that cord. You tested that cord. And so because of your intimate knowledge of the cord, you would be able to trust it. A lot easier than the man who did not know about it. And that is why we constantly need to go to the scriptures because the scriptures tell us who God is, what he has done. They tell us about his his character and his track record and how he's delivered person after person after person. I mean, think about Abraham. I love the story of Abraham. Here he is. He's old. His wife is barren. She's been barren for a long time. She's 75 years old or whatever, and she's barren. And God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Abraham believed God. But you know what? Abraham didn't see the kid. Isaac didn't come along for 25 years. He waited until Sarah was extra barren, I guess, you know, whatever. Old, real old, way, way beyond childbearing. And then... His hope was realized. 
and he received Isaac. And so it is so important as we come to the scriptures to realize we have a hope. But you need to place your faith in that hope. You need to get to know your hope. He is the living God. Turn to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, we're just going to look at a few texts in Romans before we close here. In Romans chapter 5, Paul explains the role of hope even in great tribulation. How hope brings us through. But it's not just a blind hope. It's not just a hope in, I hope things go well. It's a hope in a living God and the promises of his word. Look at verse 3 of Romans 5. Paul says, And we know, and, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Now think about that. Exult in your tribulations is basically glory in your tribulations. That sounds kind of masochistic, doesn't it? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not point, disappoint us because God... The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Here is something neat. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit gives you hope. And not only that, the text tells, gives us this sequence of events. Notice what it says. It says, you have these tribulations and you are able to exult in those tribulations because those tribulations bring about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character causes you to hope in God. And whenever you're hoping in God, you are in a position of strength. Whenever you are hoping yourself, hoping in yourself, you are in a position of weakness. Turn to Romans 8. In Romans 8, verse 24... This is what Paul says. For in hope we have been saved, but a hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now, what's he saying here? Well, you know, you realize you're a sinner. You realize you can't save yourself. You come to God, you ask Him to forgive you, you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you commit your life to Him to follow after Him, to do whatever He says, to obey His word, and you're still a sinner. So where's the salvation? You still blow it. So I thought you were saved. You shoot somebody, you still go to jail. So where's salvation? And this is where a lot of people get confused because they think that salvation happens all at once. And sure, it happens when we place our faith in Christ. And sure, we become new creatures. And sure, we begin to change into the image of Christ. But listen, glory is to come. You will still be a sinner. You still live in a sin-cursed world. But there will be a day when you will begin to experience those things that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. You will be delivered from this body of death, as Paul called it. You will be transformed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Anything you have ever suffered here on earth will be rewarded you many times over for the sake of Christ. God will not be the debtor of anyone. 
And I think when we get there, we will all regret the fact that we spent so much time striving for things of not instead of striving for godliness and things that bring glory to God. Now, we need to ask ourselves, do I have a hope like that? I mean, does my hope in God cause me to labor and strive for him? I mean, it's it can be convicting. You, you're sitting there thinking, well, no. I mean, you know, I do a little bit, but I wouldn't call it agonizing. Why is that? What does that tell you? It just tells you that there are many things of more importance to you. And you need to ask yourself, how can you get more hope? And again, we've already seen the Holy Spirit is inside of us giving us hope, and the Word of God gives us hope. That is why it is so important to understand God. It is so important to understand who God is. Turn over to Romans 15, if you're still in Romans, verse 4. And in Romans 15... He's talking about self-denial on behalf of others. He's talking about how people have to suffer for the cause of Christ. And he says this. For whatever was written in earlier times, speaking primarily the Old Testament, because the New Testament was just being written, was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I can tell you this, that people who are fraught with anxiety and worry and fretting don't know God very well. I mean, when somebody comes to me and just, you know, I'm anxious and I'm fretting and I'm worrying. Tell me about God. Tell me about the God that you believe in. Well, you know, I know it. uh, He's big and and. uh, Go on, tell me more. And. you soon realize their concept of God is that he is just a concept. He is not living. He is not real. He is not great. He is not the one who spoke the universe into existence. He is not the one who divided the Red Sea, the one who raised Christ from the dead. And because of that, all their worry and anxiety turns upon themselves. I mean, if, if you're trying to be in control and the world is going haywire... You have reason to be anxious. I mean, if you think you're the one controlling the destiny of history, you should be anxious because you aren't and things are out of control. But if you understand that God has declared the end from the beginning, that God is causing all things to move towards his intended purpose, that at the end of history, all things will be glory to him and anyone who places their faith in him will be delivered and have this glorious, eternal blessedness with God, then you have hope. And even though anything might come against you and anything might harm you, yet you don't have to worry or fret or be anxious. Paul said this in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. He says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is our hope. He, he redeemed you to present you before him holy and and blameless and beyond reproach. And then listen to this. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven in which I, Paul, was made a minister. 
before you leave here today, you need to ask yourself, how's my hope quotient? Am I labor and striving for God? If not, why not? Are you doing what God wants you to do? Are you agonizing for those things eternal? Or are you agonizing for those things temporary? You spend all your time under the house or not? I think about it. I mean, sometimes you got to go under the house. But what is the pattern of your life? When you look at your life, and if you're there, you're thinking, Jack, I, I, my hope is little. Then there might be a couple reasons. You might not have the Holy Spirit in you. You might not know God. You might need to look at your life and say, do I follow God? Have I repented of my sins? Have I taken up my cross, died to self to follow after Christ? Have I asked God to forgive me? And if you haven't, that's why you don't have hope. Or you may have the Holy Spirit in you, but he's trying to hope you and he's going through the file system trying to pull out some scriptures to encourage you, but files are empty. John 3.16 is in there, and that's all. And you know, John 3.16 is a good verse, but it's only one out of many. And there are so many good scriptures which teach, teach us that God is this fortress and deliverer, a bulwark never failing, a strength in a time of trouble. He is the one who is going to reward us that the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to the saints. And why would we be distressed when death cannot harm us? Jesus told the disciples, Do not fear them who kill the body, but I tell you who to fear. Fear him whom after he has killed the body has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus told Martha... He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. This is the hope, the hope of eternal life. And so as you leave here today, I want to encourage all of you to look at your life, look at your hope, look at your labor and striving for the Lord if it's there, and strive to be an excellent minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you are so good to us. And that you have listed in your word very carefully and very concisely. That we are to be laboring, striving for godliness. And that as we meet opposition to achieve those ends, what keeps us going is a hope. A hope that is founded upon a deep knowledge of you, an understanding of you, and knowing, Father, that you are the one who has declared the end from the beginning, and whoever believes in you will not be disappointed. Father, may we keep our eyes fixed on the things above and may we persevere and do what is right, even though the world may be doing what is wrong. And Father, may we be a help to others and may our lives be so that when others look at us, they see you living through us. And Father, that they might be compelled to to just know you more and Father, serve you and labor and strive because they too have hope. We pray this in your name. Amen.